Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I'm Jeff Rubin here today with Charlie Todd, creator of Improv Everywhere. Thank you so much for joining us, Charlie. Thanks for having me, Jeff. How would you describe Improv Everywhere for those who aren't familiar? Let's just let's just start at the beginning. Sure. Uh, so Improv Everywhere is a New York City-based prank collective that causes scenes of chaos and joy in public places. That's sort of the log line. How does that play itself out we call ourselves a, a prank collective and i refer to the projects that we do as pranks um, and that can be confusing sometimes to people because people associate the word prank with something that's negative uh, there needs to be a victim to the prank there needs to be a butt of the joke um, and we try to do things that are more focused on just being funny um, ultimately we're a comedy group uh, most of the people involved with the group are comedians and improvisers uh, so we try to do things that make us laugh that hopefully will be as funny for the person getting pranked as it is for us um, and sometimes there's there's really no victim at all and if there is a victim generally they're a victim of having a good time what would be an example of a prank that epitomizes that um, off the top of my head we did one uh, a couple of years ago called surprise wedding reception and this was uh, down at the office of the city clerk where people get married, you know, at the mayor's office here in New York City. And uh, I went down and picked out a random couple who was just, they were getting done with their, you know, city marriage uh, at just the right time. And as they were exiting the building, I went up to him and said, hey, uh, I'm from Mayor Bloomberg's office, which was, that's what makes it a prank. I was not. Um, and we are offering one couple each day a free wedding reception. Would you like one? It's in the park across the street. And they thought about it and said, yeah, of course we would. And across the street, we had set up this elaborate tent. Um, we had bridesmaids. You know, there were like six girls wearing the same dress, uh, groomsmen, six guys in tuxedos. And we had a full-on wedding reception for this random couple we'd never met. Um, that included wedding gifts that participants had brought. We had a wedding DJ. There was dancing. Uh, there was a cake that we cut. Um, Were any of their friends there? It's just them and you it was, and your friends. It was them, and her father was there, which was great because they got to have a first dance. Um, and I think his parents were there and maybe like a sister. Did you have a band? Uh, just the wedding DJ. And we, we had uh, this guy, Tim Dunn, who's a performer at UCB, be a very corny wedding DJ with like, you know, sunglasses. And, you know, he played uh, electric slide and all the cliches. Planning a wedding reception, you're getting married yourself in a week, so you, you, you may be aware, very difficult. There's a lot of work involved. Right. How did you get all these people to come together for this? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the punchline, I think, with a lot of Improv Everywhere projects is that we spend so much time doing something that ultimately is for no reason, right? I mean, we, we put all this work and all this coordination into just giving two strangers a you know, a, a, a surprise. Um, you know, maybe people who weren't able to have a wedding reception or for whatever reason had to get married, you know, on this day uh, by the city and, you know, didn't probably didn't have anything planned. I think they had planned to go to lunch that afternoon and that was it. Um, so uh, in terms of how it all works, I mean, I have a mailing list and it's always been done by email. And a lot of people identify improv everywhere with like the rise in social media and oh yeah, Facebook and Twitter and people are organizing and people are doing things. And you know, we started in 2001, so we, we just turned 10. Um, and you know, that's obviously a long time before even Friendster. Before YouTube even. Yeah, long before YouTube. Um, so you know, it's always been email. You know, it just started with myself and a couple of friends. And then, you know, as every time I met a new person in New York, uh, you know, I started taking classes at Upright Citizens Brigade um, the summer of 2001, right when I moved here. And, you know, 
every class I ever took there, I would always be like the guy that like stood up after class like hey i do this weird thing where we do like pranks around the city if anybody's interested i'd like your email address you know and i just sort of started adding people to this army over the years did you realize you were building an army or did you just do one and then you were like that was fun let's do another well it started um i'll tell the how many people are on the mailing list now this is an army there there are seventy five thousand people on the new york city mailing list that's almost more people in on the joke than outside (laughs) of it i know yeah we're getting close um but you know i mean of, of that group of 75,000 people, the most that's ever shown up is about 3,500. Um, so every now and then when I do, you know, a public open to everybody event, I have had, you know, between three and 4,000 people show up. Um, I don't know what I would do if 75,000 people showed up. <laughs> that would be a bad thing. Um, but uh, the way Improv Everywhere got started is I, I moved to New York and I had an interest in being an actor um, and, and a comedian. I had done improv in college. And I realized that that's very difficult to do in New York when you're 22 and nobody knows who you are and you've just arrived. And I had like four college friends in the city and didn't know anybody else. And I sort of was excited about that idea of like, oh, I'm in this big, huge place and nobody knows who I am. And I can sort of be whoever I want to be. You kind of get to do like a do-over. You know, I'm not, I was happy with who I was, but, um, you know, it's just kind of fun to think like, you know, the opportunities are endless for what I want to do with myself and, and who I want to be. And one night, a college friend was going out to a bar with me, and he hadn't seen me in a few months, and he said, uh, what's up, Ben Folds? And I was wearing, like, a new shirt that I got at, like, H&M that was maybe trendier than, like, the Gap clothes I wore in college or something. And uh, I was like, I don't think I look like Ben Folds. He's like, oh, that shirt, you look like Ben Folds. You look so, a little like Ben Folds. I look like Ben Folds insofar as I am white, have dark hair, um, I'm not super tall, super short, super fat, super thin. So, you know, I told my friend, I don't think I look like Ben Folds. Like, but you know what? Tonight, why don't we see if we can convince other people that I am? So we went to a bar in the West Village, and we entered separately. Uh, I sat down at the bar. He entered like five minutes later, sat down at a booth, ordered dinner, ate an entire meal. And when he was done, he came up to the bar to get a drink and noticed me and said, Oh, my God, you're... Ben Folds, I'm a huge fan. Can, you know, can I have an autograph? I have all your, your albums. And I signed a cocktail napkin for him. And he had said that loudly enough that others in the bar heard. And, and word kind of quickly spread throughout the entire bar. And I purposely sat down next to two attractive ladies who ignored me for a half hour while I drank alone. And then once they found out I was Ben Folds, wanted to know all about me. Uh, the bartender started giving me free drinks. Other people came up and asked for autographs. People came up and asked if they could pose for a photo with me. So it turned into this huge thing where everybody in the bar was aware that this famous musician was there. You know, and it's it's late at night. Um, you know, it's dark in there. Unless you're a big Ben Folds fan, you might not know exactly what he looks like. But yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. he's kind of the perfect level of celebrity, or at least he was in 2001, where. Mm-hmm. You know, you know who he is, but you're not going to tell somebody that it's not him, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and this thing lasted four hours. Um, it was an entire night. Was there a piano in the bar? Thank God there was not, <laughs> a, not a piano in the bar. Uh, so I never had to prove it. Um, but, you know, I, I'm a fan of Ben Folds, and I, mm-hmm. I knew all about him. So I was able to sort of answer questions and convincingly talk about his life. Um, so uh, at the end of the night, I sort of had a decision to make. Am I going to reveal that this has been a prank should there be like a candid camera punk type moment where i announce it uh, and that just seemed like that would ruin everything right everybody was having fun everybody was laughing it was a good night why not just leave 
So I pretended to get a phone call and, um, you know, told everybody, oh, my friends are done with their rehearsals, so I'm going to go hang out with them and told everybody goodbye. And that was it. And I got really excited about that idea of doing something unusual, sort of causing a scene, um, acting and creating something that was false, but that was false in a positive way and gave everybody a great experience and a great story to tell. So those people are still probably walking around talking about that one night they hung out with Ben Folds yeah. in the bar. Yeah, hopefully they always have the great story of, you know, I met Ben Folds, he was the nicest guy, we had so much fun. Um, or they went online and, you know, Googled Ben Folds and saw... <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah. Those people with pictures. Yeah. Or, or if you went to his website, he was actually doing a show in Australia the same night, so... Definitely not in New York. But in 2001, you couldn't really check that. Well, I, I Googled it that next day. But and, not at the bar, you couldn't check no, it. No, you couldn't. Exactly. Exactly. This is a prank that would not work with in the iPhone age. That, that's exactly right. When did you start thinking, okay, so causing these scenes, I want to start shooting these and putting these online. And how did you do that before YouTube? Yeah, so that so the very first prank, you know, no photographs existed. I mean, it, it truly was improvised, right? My friend said, you look like Ben Folds. And I said... You know what? Let's go. Let's go try to do that. So that very first prank was was actually improvised, and mm -hmm. that that's sort of why the word improv is in the name of the group. Um, you know, my friend said you look like Ben Folds, and I said, oh, let's go. Let's try it out, and we, you know, spontaneously went and, and, and did that. Um, now, obviously, you know, our projects are very well thought out and planned uh, ahead of time, and there's a lot of coordination that goes into it. So a lot of times people will see the name improv everywhere, and it will confuse them. And, you know, they'll say, like, oh, this should be called planned everywhere. Um, I get that angry YouTube comment a lot. Um, but, you know, the word improv does still make sense because we never know how people are going to react to us. Even if we've planned out what we're doing, we still have to kind of be able to react in the moment to the situation. Was there an example of a prank that you tried to pull where the reaction from the crowd was so different from what you had planned that you had to completely, you know, change direction mid mid prank? Well, uh, not so much not so much a reaction from the crowd, but just like reactions from security guards or police. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's definitely happened to us over the years. You don't strike me as a rebel. Uh, I don't like, I like bending the rules and I like, I like doing, I like, I don't like breaking the law. Mm -hmm. Improv Everywhere is not really interested in breaking the law. We're not interested in being arrested. Um, you know, that's never the goal, but we are interested in sort of breaking a store policy or breaking a park regulation. Wait or... a minute. Best Buy store policy <laughs> is not federal law. <laughs> I, yeah. I, as far as I know, it's not, not yet. <laughs> maybe, maybe not yet. Have you been arrested? Improv Everywhere um, has had two big incidents with the police over the years. Um, the first one was our uh, YouTube prank. So this was in uh, May of 2005. U2 was coming to New York City. They were playing a gig at Madison Square Garden. In fact, I think they were playing like a week of shows at Madison Square Garden. I used to live in this apartment building across the street from MSG. And it was like a four-story tall apartment building. And I had access to my roof. My roommate was a drummer in a cover band. So the prank pretty much wrote itself, right? Like U2 is known for surprise rooftop performances. I had access to a roof across the street from a U2 show uh, and access to a band. So uh, my roommate, Chris Kula, he, he set his band set up on the roof, um, his drum kit, uh, amplifiers for the guitarist, a PA system, and we had them dress up like U2, uh, you know, wigs, glasses a fake goatee for the edge 
uh, leather jacket, the whole thing. And about an hour before the real U2 show, uh, at, at a moment when there were 20,000 fans sort of walking down 8th Avenue on the way to the garden, uh, U2 did a surprise performance and they played five live songs on the roof. So we started with Where the Streets Have No Name, uh, which is you know a reference to, the, to their video for Where the Streets sure. Have No Name on the roof, uh, rooftop of a liquor store in Los Angeles. And then we played Even Better Than the Real Thing, which was the name of the prank, kind of a nice pun um. for our fake band. Uh, but at the end of this performance, the very real cops showed up. Uh, which was sort of perfect because, you know, the cops stopped U2 in, in 1987. The, uh, in the uh, Where the Streets Have No Name video. Yep. And the cops also stopped the Beatles, you know, in the original rooftop performance. Um, so, you know, we suspected that it might happen. And when it did, it was terrifying because we did not want to go to jail. Um, but it was also awesome. And uh, I, Fake Bono was handcuffed. And Fake Bono was this actor, Ptolemy Slocum. And he... Uh, <laughs> When the cop asked him for his ID, his response was, I don't need an ID. People know who I am. Still staying in the scene as he's being arrested. Yeah, which was so dumb. Like, I didn't tell him to do that. <laughs> like, you, know, you know, look, I, I commit and I stay in character and I, that it is what you're supposed to do with improv everywhere. But ultimately, if a police officer is there and, you know, it's okay to, like, break character and not insist that you're Bono and you're fake wig in classes. And is that on video? We have a video of it, yeah. I don't think we have that specific moment, but we do have pretty good coverage of it. So you it. kept the cameras rolling as the as the cops came? We kept the cameras rolling as best we could. You know, they were telling us to turn them off. Um, and uh, so he got handcuffed, and then I went up and said I was the organizer of the event, so I got handcuffed. And um, eight of us were detained and ticketed. We got a um, summons to court, and the violation was unreasonable noise, which I have to admit is pretty fair. Like, we were loud. Yeah. Um, so we went to Midtown Community Court a month later, and the judge dismissed it. I'm not sure Did you why. have to explain this story, and the judge like, okay, so a few years ago, <laughs> I dressed up as Ben Folds, we got into this thing, or how did the judge react to it? It was, it was sort of disappointing, because I don't think she was given any of the information. Like, we stood up, and she had the ticket in front of her that said, playing music on a roof, unreasonable noise. And she just said, playing music on a roof? Ah, who cares? Dismissed. It's so such a minor piece of the actual story. I know, I know, because I was prepared to be like, here's why it's funny, and here's why it was socially relevant. <laughs> <Here's, you know? laughs> um, and it was funny, because the cops didn't really realize what had happened at first, either. And we were all, we were in, like, the entryway to my apartment building. We were all in handcuffs. And um, he was looking at fake Bono's ID, and he was like, this is you? And I turned to the cop and I was like, he's still wearing a wig. And the cop's like, oh, I was like, he's supposed to be Bono. We were pretending to be you two. And then they sort of started laughing. Then they turned to my friend Terry Jen, who's a Korean American guy, and said, who are you supposed to be? And he was like, uh, the edge? <laughs> <laughs> the cops realized that we had an Asian edge and they, they, they started laughing and like the, the, the mood kind of broke and we're like, okay, we're not going to prison. I feel like you could, <laughs> past Bono and The Edge, you could have made the other members of the band Asian and no one would have, I don't know the, any <laughs> of the drummer's name of the bass. Adam, is Adam, is Adam Clayton? Is Adam the, Clayton is a bass player. I'm surprised at, yeah. in this very moment to learn that I know the name of the bassist from U2. I don't know how <laughs> that's in my biggest band in the world. It's, yeah. in, it's in everybody's head somewhere. What's the drummer's name? Uh, Larry Mullen. Now that Larry one. Mullen Jr., in fact. I don't think I knew that one. So, so Chris Kula played Larry Mullen. He put on no costume. He doesn't look. Yeah, he, he doesn't look like Larry Mullen, but it was just like, hey, he's behind the drum kit. And... Even the U two fans on the way to the concert aren't going to recognize him from that one. What yeah. was the other one where you almost got arrested? The other or time did you get arrested? The other time that we had serious problems with the police was the fifth annual No Pants Subway Ride. So, uh, No Pants Subway Ride started in two thousand and two. It was just an idea I had. 
that was based around what if you were sitting on a subway car and a guy got on in the middle of winter with no pants on, right? But he's which wearing, might happen in the New York subway, which is not that weird in New York, right? Um, but you know, this guy's got on a winter coat and hat, scarf, gloves. He's reading a magazine like it's no big deal, but doesn't have pants on. So that's the, that's the first half of it. And then the real punchline is at the next stop, an entirely separate stop, another guy gets on in his underwear as well, right? And they don't act like they know each other. And that's more unusual. Exactly. So th- I think that's sort of the beauty of improv everywhere being in New York is that we can't get away with just doing something that's mildly unusual because there's mildly unusual things on literally every block of this city every day. So it challenges us to like come up with things that are more elaborate and actually, I mean, it, it is a great challenge to get a New Yorker who's riding the subway to take their earbuds out. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's totally true. I, I'm trying to think of occasions where I once saw uh, this guy and he had the word no tattooed on his face <laughs> and like all over his face and he was making phallic balloon animals and hanging them around the subway. And then a mariachi band got on the subway and they started playing <laughs> And neither acknowledged the existence of the other one, but they were both still doing it. And neither did anyone on the subway. Everyone's just still reading their book or just right. trying not to look. But I think that's uh, that's what makes improv. That's what separates improv everywhere from your garden variety flash mob is right. uh, this planning and the the patience of it. Because there, there's a timing element of it where you're kind of boiling the frog slowly and like turning up the heat slowly so that. Before they, if you, if you just had 500 people bum rush the subway car naked, everyone would be like, oh, this is a thing, this is annoying. Right. But to, to slowly make them not even realize that they're part of the scene, of the I think, scene. Uh, is something different. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so why did the cops get mad? So, so this was 2006. It was the fifth year in a row that we had done the No Pants subway ride. Um, you know, we don't normally repeat ourselves, but the first No Pants was just so funny, and the video we got out of it was so funny that I was inspired to do it again, and then it sort of became an annual thing. So it had grown every year. This year it was 150 people. And we had them, it was very organized. It was like we divided them up between the 10 subway cars. So it was only going to be like 15 people a car. And then we divide them up by stop, one at the first stop, one at the second stop, then two people, then four people, then eight people. Um, so it was very coordinated. And by the time we got to 59th Street, it was right about towards the end of the prank. So pretty much every car had about 15 people in their underwear. And uh, a cop noticed it um you know looked through the window when the when the train arrived and saw that there were these people you know in their underwear and he walked on and said you know what's going on here and the participants there said what i told people to say which was oh we just forgot our pants uh no we don't know i don't know the other people i don't know what you're talking about um which again like that's what you're supposed to say to people who ask questions but maybe you shouldn't say that to a cop right um so he got frustrated um and took the train out of service made all of us get off made all of the regular people just riding the train get off sent the train away called for backup within five minutes there were 25 cops on the platform and it had been a very orderly smoothly running event and then all of a sudden it was chaos and this was sort of the first year that improv everywhere was sort of on the radar of the media and this was kind of the first public event we had done um, since since we'd had some articles written about us. And there was a photographer from every New York newspaper and also Reuters and the Associated Press present at this prank. And so there's this moment where we had eight people in their underwear in handcuffs. It was sort of like the eight people that couldn't get their pants back on in time who the cops nabbed. So there was just this wonderful moment of these people in their in their underwear 
in handcuffs and just like every photographer from every paper taking photos of it and it was just like the perfect photo it ran all over the world that next day and that next night i was on countdown with keith olbermann like defending the right to not wear pants on the subway yeah so what is keith olbermann's position on not wearing pants he mostly just tried to be funny it was it was before he sort of really became the Keith Olbermann we know. It was kind of in the early days yeah. of Countdown where he would still do a silly story about people not right, wearing their pants. Um, so he was kind of just trying. To, he, he was sort of taking the point of view that we just discussed, which was like, oh, it's New York. That happens every day. I see that every day. And it's like, no, you don't. You don't see 15 people in their underwear every day. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> the, first, the first guy maybe, but yeah. once it gets to 15, it's something new. When you started this in 2002, where we kind of touched on this earlier, but where were you actually putting those videos? Because that's before YouTube. How did you get them online and build a following? Right. So, um, yeah, Improv Everywhere, you know, existed really just as a as a website, right? It was first a GeoCities.com website. Ooh, I'm, I'm proud to up? say. Well, what's, you know, what's Ge- your address? Well, you know, GeoCities got taken down. Yeah, someone archived yeah. them. Yeah, or they tried to archive. There is, as much there, of it there's like a, the archives like 900 gigabytes or something. So. I don't even think they got all of them. I think they tried to get all of them, but yeah. um, you know, they so, did they did their best. Somewhere in uh, Jason Scott's archive team's archive of GeoCities, like my website might be in there, but it was just GeoCities.com/slash/improv/everywhere. A great catchy address at the time of 2001. Do you remember when you first started GeoCities and they had this idea, this is really going back, but they had this idea that uh, everyone would have an address. Yep. You, you were in a neighborhood depending, like if yep. you, your site was about movies, you'd be in Hollywood. So it was slash Hollywood slash an address because we have addresses in the real space, so a website <laughs> should work the same way. They should have addresses too. At, in uh, college, I created a website for my college theater group. And I remember it was like geocities.com slash Broadway slash mezzanine slash 4566225 slash UNC theater or whatever it was. And you were putting these up as video? So no. I mean, you know, that was unthinkable. You couldn't put video on the internet. Um, You know, it was just text for the ones where I didn't have a digital camera, which was the first couple. And then I like, you know, was like, I got to get a digital camera. And it was just sort of perfect timing for us. If Improv Everywhere had started in 1991, and I'm sure there are plenty of people doing pranks in public places in decades past. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, even if it it was 10 years earlier in 91, like, how how would we have gotten the word out? Like, and you need to, there's something of a symbiotic relationship where you have to get fans to get to recruit new yeah. members for your army. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, the only way to ever get sort of seen would be to do these pranks and film them with, like, a VHS camera and mail the tape to MTV and just cross your fingers that an executive gave you a show like Buzzkill, you know, mm-hmm. or, or later Jackass. Um, but, uh, you know, we came around at a time where digital photography was all of a sudden cheap and available. Um, digital video was just sort of starting out. Final Cut Pro was a new thing. Um, and all of a sudden, the means of production were very affordable. And then after a few years, when YouTube came around, the means of distribution were free. So all of a sudden, we had the ability to do exactly what we wanted to do, film it ourselves, and put it online for the world to see for next to no money. Earlier, you mentioned that you had had 3,500 people show up to one of the events. Which was that? Um, our most recent No Pants Subway ride. Um, you had 3,500 people on the No Pants subway ride? Yes. Do you alert the cops now that this is going to be a thing, or do <laughs> well, they so, know about it now? So to finish that story, so we, so the cop, you know, uh, he, like, handcuffed eight people. They were taken in a police van, um, you know, down to a holding cell. They were ticketed for disorderly conduct, which is what the cops ticket you with if they don't know what you did, but they didn't like it. Right. right? It's sort of a catch-all charge. You were disorderly. That makes sense. And really, like, we were very orderly. I mean, it was comical how organized the event was. 
and what one funny anecdote from that was that one of the guys who who got detained he had he was separated from his pants he did not have his pants so when he was leaving the holding cell he told the cops he was like I don't have my pants because you handcuffed me and took me away from them. I have to get home. I live in Brooklyn. I'm going to take the subway in my underwear to get home. That is the only way I can get home. They're like, get out of here. (laughs) Wait, so if I'm a no-pants subway rider, where do I store my pants? What's the solution for that? So in the old days, um, we used to have a punchline to the prank where there would be a pants seller. So you, you would take your pants off in one car, and somebody would collect them all in a duffel bag. Then you'd exit the train and get on to the next one. And then eventually the punchline would be that person would come back like a kid selling peanut M&Ms in the subway and say, I've got pants for sale for a dollar. We'd all buy a pair of pants and leave. That's a good joke. But I think it was 2007. um, It was like 300 people. And way too many people got their pants mixed up or like (laughs) didn't get their pants. And I was like, you know what? I can't be responsible for people's pants. Like you, you should keep your pants on you at all times. So now people bring backpacks and you just put your pants in your backpack. And, or your purse or whatever. Again, it's that layer of organization that I think separates you from other people who try to do this. The, ter- the term flash mob gets thrown around a lot. You guys, you guys must predate the word flash mob, I think, right? We do, yeah. And I hate the term flash mob. I was going to ask. Um, and I'm sort of forever tied to it, um, no matter what I do. Even though I very clearly say on my FAQ, we are not flash mobs. We predate flash mobs. We don't like flash mobs. Um, well, and not, not to say I don't like flash mobs. We just don't like the term. What is it you don't like about the term? So um, just to give the history, we started in the summer of 2001. And then uh, in the summer of 2003, um, a guy named Bill Wasik, who was a Harper's Magazine editor, did this experiment, a synonymous experiment called the Mob Project, where he started emailing people and saying, you know, the first mob will be, you know, in front of Claire's accessories on Broadway. And it was sort of like an experiment in like scenesterism and like, can we get a bunch of people to show up? It was almost a prank on the participants. Mm-hmm. Can we get a bunch of people to show up somewhere for no reason just because it's the place to be? That was kind of his philosophy. He wrote a long article about it for Harper's about a year after it was over, um, sort of revealing that this had sort of been a prank on everybody who had done it, which I think rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But uh, I've met Bill, and he's a great guy, and I think it was just an experiment in his eyes. Um, so I had, at that time, I was doing projects that were getting bigger and bigger as sort of my army was assembling, and I was doing things with like 50, 60 people. Um, and then the mob project came along, and it was you know generally a couple of hundred people at each one. So I was terrified that summer because that blew up. It was this huge media story, and I went to one of them, and there were all these like CNN was there, like you know they were almost all immediately ruined because you know press cameras were there, which like immediately gives away that something's going on when you have giant cameras. Um, which is one reason why I never invite the media to come to our events anymore. Like I keep them secret and try to just make it clear that the media is not invited. Um, which is tough when you have an email list of 75,000 people. It is. I've found that the media won't show up if they don't know what it is. So a lot of times what I have to do now, um, and this is sort of something that sets us apart from a garden variety flash mob as well, is that you, we don't put out all the information of what it is online. You know, I might say, Meet in the northern plaza of Union Square at 2 p.m., wear a blue polo shirt and khaki pants, and you'll receive further instructions there. And then only once everyone assembles, I say, today's prank, we're going to Best Buy, and we're going to give them 100 extra employees. You know, um, But I feel like if I posted ahead of time, we're going to Best Buy. One, these days with Twitter, there's somebody who works in Best Buy PR who has a search for the term Best Buy and would find out about it and contact a local store and there would be police waiting for us. Um, so, you know, I, I, I can't reveal the, the ideas online. Um, 
So anyway, flash mobs were sort of a craze in New York in 2003 that summer. There were like six of them. And it kind of spawned this international movement where people all over the world were doing flash mobs. Um, but then it really kind of died, especially um, when, when Bill sort of said, this project's over. And then a year later when he wrote the article saying it was all a joke anyway. It really was didn't happen. And New York are really the U.S. for probably four years. And it's sort of my fault that they came back. Because in 2008, in January, I put our Frozen Grand Central video on YouTube, um, which YouTube featured on the front page and went on. It has about 30 million views now. And that project was 200 people freezing in place in Grand Central Terminal. Um, so, you know, it's very flash mobby, right? I mean, it's a large number of people coming together, doing something unusual for five minutes and disappearing. While I don't use the term flash mob, I completely understand how you could label that a flash mob. And that video just took off and within i think within like a month of it being on youtube it had been done in a hundred other cities so a thousand people went out and frozen place in trafalgar square in london and two thousand people frozen place in paris and three different cities in china and south africa and australia like really all over the world people went out in frozen place what are you thinking when you're you're seeing that this thing you did inspired an international movement it was wild. I mean, it, you know, it, it's crazy to create something and sort of watch it become bigger than you and watch it sort of leave your control. And I think that that meme of freezing in place definitely like I tried to like ride that horse and it just left and was like, this is way bigger than me, you know, and people will freeze in place somewhere every weekend still on a college campus or in a train station in Europe. Um, and they might not know what improv everywhere is and they might not know who I am. Um, it's just gotten bigger. And ultimately I think that's really exciting and it's really cool to have created something that spread that far. Um, but I, I think the, that spreading sort of reinvigorated flash mobs and a lot of people started referring to it as flash mob and a lot of similar things started happening and sort of now we're in sort of the, the second era of flash mobs where Facebook exists. Right. So it was more difficult in 2003 when the first flash mob craze started for any average Joe to organize flash mob. You had to have some influence. I remember this was like 2009, probably there was a NYU student who was an exchange student from London, moved here, did not know anybody. He had done like a silent disco flash mob in the UK, which is uh, just people. I think I've seen that. Is that possible? It might be. I mean, we do something that's sort of similar called our MP3 experiment project mm -hmm. where everybody's listening to the exact same MP3 and the MP3's instructions to do coordinated things. A silent disco is it's sometimes called a um, it's either called a, a silent rave or a mobile disco. Actually, those are kind of the two terms for it, but it's less coordinated. It's just like listen to your own music, whatever you want to listen to. But we're all going to meet up and dance silently. And I think they started in uh, in the UK, maybe in like the late 90s as kind of a a way to get around like rave laws like we won't make any noise in this rave we'll be silent so it was kind of a thing like in train stations and public squares in the uk this might happen so this guy moved here and he created a facebook event saying like here's a link to a video of uh, a silent rave in the uk i'm organizing one in union square in one month keep in mind this guy has no friends except his like roommate at nyu within that month period 2,000 people had said yes to the Facebook event and like a thousand people showed up and when I saw that happen I was like wow like this this whole world has changed it used to be like a couple years ago you know before Facebook like I had a pretty unique power like I had this massive mailing list where I could mobilize hundreds of people and now really anybody with a good idea 
and a Facebook account, you know, can mobilize tons of people. Um, they're not that many great ideas, so it doesn't happen that much. Yeah, that's but, the tricky part, yeah. of course, is, uh, you know, coming up with the next everybody freezing. I remember the moment when I realized that flash mobs had gone too far. I was watching an episode of Modern Family, which mm-hmm. is a show I generally like. Mm-hmm. I was watching it. This is Lone of the Second Season. And there was that one where uh, they encounter a flash mob, and one of the characters, I think... Uh, What's his name? The Jesse Tyler Ferguson character. I don't watch it, but I, I, Great. I, I know of the episode. You, you must have seen it. It was like, oh, it's one of those flash mob. And he explains what it is to the audience. And I was like, all right, it's over. <laughs> and I like that show, but, I, I, you know, it's it's an inside joke. So when it's on the most popular show in the world, right. it's, is it an inside joke anymore? Well, the, so then, so flash mob sort of like got reinvigorated with Frozen Grand Central. And then about a year after Frozen Grand Central, uh, T-Mobile in the UK, they did a, um, a commercial that was called the T-Mobile Dance, which was in Liverpool Station in London. And it was it was a massive number of people dancing to a medley of pop songs. Um, done by an advertising agency, 100% commercial. Everybody was an actor. They rented out the thing. It was, you know, everything that, you know, a, a, a flash mob or an improv everywhere project is not, right? It was, everybody was being paid to do it. It was promoting a product. It was all licensed and authorized. And, um, but nevertheless, the video was, it was a huge hit. And it was partially hit because they aired it on every TV network in London, like at like 8 p.m., like the first commercial break that night, and then debuted it online in that instant. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Tell me more about this T-Mobile product. <laughs> Should I be buying it? <laughs> so, uh, so that video was hugely popular, and and I hated it. Um, I mean, it, it's a good video, but I hated it because it was in a train station, and it was sort of shot in the exact same style as the Grand Central video. I can't say that they stole my idea. I never did a video where 200 people did a choreographed dance. I had done a people where two, a video where 200 people had frozen in place, but the way they shot it, the types of camera angles they used, the length of the video, the style was very, very similar. And I know it was similar because every day for two years, I got five emails saying, were you involved with the T-Mobile dance? Have you seen this video? Like that video sort of became like my personal Rick Roll. Where I would get, you know, I, I have a contact form on my website. Anybody can write me. And every day, a couple times, I'd get an email saying like, hey, I found this really cool thing you should check out. You're not going to not click that link, right? Mm, yeah. But for me, like nine times out of ten, it's T-Mobile dance, like over and over again. Um, and that video spawned another copy. It, it had a copy. I mean, I think it was somewhat derivative of Grand Central. And then there was a very derivative thing of that, which was... Um, people singing or lip syncing to the sound of music in a Belgian train station. And that was just as, I mean, both of these videos are Grand Central has like 30 million. I think they both have about 30 million as well. Um, so, and that was like a synchronized dance singing along to the sound of music. Also a corporate promotion, which most people don't realize. So they were all singing along to like, they, they all have the song synced up. I think they, they played the song over the PA system oh, of the train station. That's and less it, fun. And they danced to it. Yeah. And it's interesting. I'm kind of involved in the. I think what might it's usually called lip dubbing, and mm-hmm. uh, which is a term that I know Jake Lodwick, who I used yep. to work with, invented. Yep. And I think I'm in what may be the first lip dub. I'm not. I'm not confident enough to say it is. Is that flagpole sitter? Or, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, it's not. It's certainly a, a milestone in the lip dub subgenre. Yeah, I think that's a very similar trajectory. Where like, yeah, I mean, Jacob created the lip Jacob dub. Jacob definitely right? invented the word lip dub. Yeah. That much I'm sure of. And. Uh, and I remember because it was on The Office season premiere from last year. Yep. They, they explicitly like hold up a sign that says lip dub. And I, I thought about it. And uh, yeah, Jake absolutely invented that term. I'm pretty sure he invented the form too. But I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm only holding back on saying it because I'm not 
positive. Yeah. I mean, people have lip synced before and sure. lip synced on video before, but that the idea of everyone syncing up and, and flowing from yeah. room to room. Um, yeah, I mean that first that flagpole set of video you guys did was. Incredible. I mean, that's all Jake. I, I I sit there and I sing a line or two, uh, but yeah. that's all Jacob. I think I picked. I'm sure of this too. Actually, I picked the song. We knew we were going to do it. Oh, that's and, great. Uh, well, that, well, you can take some. Yeah, credit, I can then. take I can take credit for that. I definitely picked that song. Um, you know, everyone was throwing out song ideas, and I just love that song. Yeah. So so I mean that's sort of a similar thing where like now lip dub is like this. You know, you, you see like oh students in a college in Sweden did this incredible lip dub or. The town of Grand Rapids got together and did a lip yeah, dub this which summer. Which was incredible. It was, that, it was an amazing, was an amazing video. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean that, that sort of became much bigger than you guys, where people are sure. doing lip dubs and they have no idea that it's origins in the College Humor office in Tribeca. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so anyway, so there was the T-Mobile dance, and then there was this um, commercial for a reality show in Belgium, which was there was a reality show about the Sound of Music, like they were doing a production of the Sound of Music. Um, and those two were dance based, and so I think in the wake of those videos' popularity. To most people now, including like modern family writers, flash mob means synchronized dance in public. Yeah, right? that and, is how they use it on modern family. Yeah, and the, the original flash mobs from 2003, none of them were dancing, right? It was just a group of people getting together and doing something out of the ordinary, which is more similar to improv everywhere. It's also taken kind of a nasty turn lately because you guys and everyone for the past 10 years has generally been using flash mob to, oh, we'll do this silly thing. But now, I guess the youth in i think primarily uh, is using flash mobs to organize and kind of just swarm a store and they all just uh, a, a swarm of teenagers descends right. upon the store and then they just all shoplift at once and there's nothing you can do about it and they're using that same power that you guys kind of and I'm, I'm not blaming you for right, this, by no. the way. i'm certainly not holding you responsible but uh you created this idea that you can organize all these people to show up at one place at once with no warning and then somewhere along the line as i guess probably always happens someone's like how can we use this to benefit us? What is the evil thing to do with this? Right. Yeah, I mean, so so that's been an interesting trend. And it started, I think, like last summer, some teens in Philadelphia. And then this spring, it was some teens in Chicago. There's no way to say, like, teens or teenagers without being, like, <laughs> without just sounding so disdainful about right. it. I don't know when, when that turned in my life. But now when I'm, well, like, Probably teens, when you turned 20. Was yeah. Turned. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I think I got away with it for a while. But recently, I caught... I, I was just like, what are teenagers doing? There's just, there's just no yeah. way to do it, get around it. But so, so one of the reasons why I was, from the beginning, when Flash Mob became like, you know, it was invented, the term was invented by a blogger to describe the mob project, and then the media ran with that term. The media loves to have a buzzword, right? And I've very carefully detached myself from that buzzword because it's never smart to have what you do associated with a buzzword because a buzzword can become a fad and it can if you know if the media has created the term they can make the term mean whatever it wants to be and they can take that term on a narrative that takes twists and turns and the latest narrative that the media has constructed for the term flash mob is that it's gang violence in you know in in american cities but it's actually not so you'll see like all these news reports where they're like, you know, uh, latest flash mob, flash mobs have gone wrong, flash mob robbery in Philadelphia, teens are using Facebook and Twitter to organize, but like, there's actually no evidence that I've seen in any of these news stories that the teenagers are actually using Facebook and Twitter or any online means to organize themselves. You know, they're not actually really using flash mob tactics, they are using mob tactics like, I think it's... Good old-fashioned mob <laughs> yeah. tactics. No, that's what it is, though. I mean, I think, like, you should call it a crime mob or an angry mob or a rowdy mob, but it is in no way a flash mob. These people, one, they all know each other. 
So the media has like given us the perception in these articles about this trend that just random unconnected teenagers through Twitter or Facebook they're all deciding to shoplift together. Are deciding to shoplift together, but what's actually happening is like 30 guys who go to high school together who are, you know, criminals, um, ne'er-do-wells are getting teenagers to, teenagers um, are getting together and making the decision to go rob a store together. And you know, are they using their cell phones to to organize? Yes, but they use their cell phones to organize what party they're going to on Friday night. Like it's sort of also, I feel like flash mobs are taking some blame in this, but also like social media. Like this is the dark side of social media. Yeah. But like, did we talk about the dark side of the telephone when people like called each other to like meet up and go rob a bank? Like I bet they did. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Neither of us were around. Now that we have the telegraph, people can organize. You know, that's, I think that's always what's fun about technology is you never exactly know how right. it's going to be used it seems like the improv everywhere correct me if i'm wrong it seems like they're more your videos lately are you know over, over time they've gotten a lot more feel good like the the they've gotten more positive mm-hmm. and fuzzy which is interesting because i don't think anyone else does pranks that make people feel good and you seem to have embraced that and moved in that direction was that a conscious decision um, I mean, it was it was always the goal from the start to do things that were positive and that that were were funny um, and fun. And I think you know, being around UCB was a part of that too. Because when you start start taking classes at Upright Citizens Brigade, you learn about you know improvisers who taught to agree with each other and say yes to each other, and it's you know the easy way out to argue or fight. And some of the very early improv where pranks I did, you know, it would be like a friend and I would would, would get in a fight in a public place, you know. But, or some type of argument or dispute. And, like, it's very... I'm like, you and I could go out and get on the subway right now and pretend like we don't know each other and pretend to get into a fight, and we'd cause a huge scene, and strangers would be breaking us apart, and people would be screaming. But that's not interesting, right? I mean, anyone can do that. There's no creativity there. So I always just challenge myself, like, well, it's it's actually difficult to get people to take their headphones off and interact with you for something that's fun and positive. And, like, you know, people don't usually talk to each other about something good, like strangers um you know if you're in line at the post office and it's like a really long line you might break the social barrier and say something to the, to the guy behind you like oh they should open up more windows you right, know right. like oh this is ridiculous yeah but have you ever been at the post office and like every window's open and the line's moving really quickly and you turn around and go like hey this is really great today this is great <laughs> service right yeah so i like to try to you know it's really difficult you don't usually comment to a stranger about something that's great no, sometimes you can even do it with uh, this. I'm thinking what I do, like I, without even talking, just kind of roll your eyes. Right, and I'm, I'm guilty of that myself. Absolutely. So I think you know it's sort of our goal to create these disturbances and you know that that make people like go like, did you see this? This is hilarious. Or you know like, are there? Look at this. There's 15 twins on this side of the train and 15 twins on that side of the train, and they're all dressed the same. Uh, you know, just creating these moments that like you have to react to. But, you know, I, in terms of, like, the feel-good stuff, like, I, I think we are at our best when we are not only just doing something that's funny, but doing something that specifically is sort of a gift to someone else. So, like, giving someone a wedding reception. Or we did a thing years ago at a Little League baseball game. I love that video. Yeah, so that was uh, – I, I worked – What was that? So I worked on um, I worked on a TV pilot with NBC, so they were involved with that, um, which is why NBC Sports was involved. Um, and uh, – we took a little league baseball game out in Southern California, played by ten-year-olds, and turned it into a major league game. None of the kids knew. 
the parents didn't know the coaches didn't know it was only the league commissioner was in on it he gave us all their names and gave us sort of the access to set up our hidden cameras uh first inning game is normal second inning all of a sudden mobs of fans show up it was the lug nuts and the mud cats and we had like baseball caps with their logos um we had signs with the names of the players so you just showing up as fans we showed up as fans um and there've been a couple of videos sort of in the wake of this where people have done it and like you know a swedish soccer game did it once um so yeah all of a sudden you know we're packing the game but then it starts heightening and then in the next inning there was a truck parked behind the outfield wall and from within that truck a jumbotron rose up so all of a sudden you've got this huge screen that's broadcasting the game live we reveal all these NBC Sports cameras, and we're putting the players' names and like baseball card photos up mm-hmm. on the monitor. Um, the sports commentator Jim Gray uh, was there. Along- I feel good just hearing the story. Again. <laughs> I've seen the video. Yeah, so Jim Gray and I, uh, you know, were revealed to be in the crappy little wooden broadcast booth in the back, um, and we were announcing the game for NBC Sports, calling the players' names to the plate, um, and then the final heightening was the the real Goodyear blimp flew overhead, and it. The Goodyear Blimp has an LED monitor, and it actually had like the names of the teams on the on the monitor. What are the kids doing? They're still playing the game. They were freaking out, but they they just had to play. Um, the league commissioner told the umpire, "Like we're doing something today, but the game goes on no matter what." So you know, the game didn't stop, and uh, you know they they got to play this game with you know all these like you know major league uh, accessories to it. Um, and at the end of the game, people went and got autographs from the kids. I mean, it, it's that kind of. I think some of our best pranks are the ones where, you know, it is a prank. Like we, they weren't expecting it, but they're not only do we not do a reveal moment, there couldn't be a reveal moment. Like the reveal moment, like what would, what would that be? Like, you know, gotcha. We don't care at all about you kids. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I guess maybe they, they, I mean, they, they, they could have thought it was being broadcast on TV, but you know, actually it was being made for an NBC pilot. So it was our intention to put it on television. Mm-hmm. It didn't get picked up, but um, so, you know, I, those are, I think those are our best moments where it's like, we're doing this really elaborate, you know, work intensive thing. That's just to give somebody else a great time. On the flip side of that, have you ever done anything where afterwards you were like, Oh, maybe we shouldn't have done that. It made you feel a little guilty. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, early on we did, um, Sort of, sort of the prequel to the um, best baseball game ever was something called the best gig ever, which was we found an unknown rock band, um, and they were touring to New York for their first gig ever, and first tour ever, excuse me. Uh, they played local shows in Vermont, and I basically just opened up the Village Boys and tried to find the worst possible time slot that any band could have, and it was this band, and it was 11 o'clock on a Sunday night, for 10 bucks i saw that they were also playing friday night for five bucks so i was like oh well they probably have friends in new york that'll come see them on friday yeah. they're not coming back on sunday so um we picked this band we went to their website it was a good band i liked their music you know i wanted to pick pick a band that like i didn't want it to come across as we're making fun of you um the idea was called the best gig ever the idea was to pack their show and give them the, the best gig that they could that they could have um so we went to their website. They had like an EP of six songs. I told the participants, download the music, memorize the lyrics, treat them as if they are your favorite band. And Improv Everywhere was pretty small then. It was 2004. So we only had about 30 people show up, but that was enough. And my prediction was correct. They only had three people there who were their friends. So right before the gig, there were sort of like three people standing around, like, are they even going to do the show? And then our 30 sort of file in. And we just went crazy. Um, and I told people, like, you know, 
don't be too over the top like be realistic however you would behave for your favorite band um and the our energy sort of fed them and they started amping up their game and doing more sort of theatrics on stage and getting into it and that made us go crazy and it was just sort of this like cycle of like energy where like we would pump them up and they'd pump us up and it was a great night when it was over we just disappeared that was sort of the end of the prank Mm -hmm. kind of to lead them to think what the hell was that and you know i i I was sensitive about this idea um a friend of mine came up with it and i thought it was a great idea but i was a little concerned because it is delicate right you are sort of dealing with a band's ego and um you know you don't want to upset them and um this was in a time before YouTube, and it was a time when Improv Everywhere was not especially popular. So I didn't really think they'd find out. You know, I used to do weird things like this, and no one would ever find out. Um, and I thought, well, maybe like a year from now, they'll Google their band name, and they'll find out about it. This is before Twitter alerts and Google alerts even. Um, and they found out, like, within 24 hours of it being on my website. Turns out a guy I did improv with at UCB went to high school with somebody in the band because the world's a small place. And... They sent in, they thought about it, they sent in emails and they were very positive about it. And they kind of, I think, savvily realized like this could be good PR for us. And there was an article in Spend Magazine, article in Rolling Stone, the New York Times mentioned it. So they start, they got a lot of press out of it. And I think they got a lot of good bookings out of it too. Uh, but This American Life went up to Vermont and interviewed them and the guitarist was hurt by it. Um, or at least... At, uh, in that in this American Life interview, like sort of indicated that he was hurt by it. What was he hurt by? He said that he was bullied in high school, and you know it all sort of came back to him. You know, because comedy people are so cool, right? I know. Um, so, and, and the way that this American Life sort of edited the story, it makes me seem like a sociopath because I had never met the band. Right? They sent me an email saying like it was a good time. You got us. We're cool with it. Yeah, it was fun. Um, and this American Life interviewed me about it, and I said, like, oh, it was really fun. It was a great experience. Uh, the band got some PR. Everybody was happy. Then they went to Vermont, and um, there was only one guy in the band, really, who, who was unhappy, but he went at, he talked at length about how it had affected him. And then this American Life cuts back to me. They didn't come back to me and say, like, oh, this guy actually said this. What do you say now? They just cut back to my prior interview where, I, you know, so I'm like, it was great. It was fun. And he's like, it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And then they cut back to me and I'm like, it was so great. Mm. So, you know, I got a lot of hate mail when that came out saying, like, you are so dense. You don't understand other people's feelings. You're a bully. Um, and of course this American life also had like really like dark music playing underneath all of it. And the theme of that week's episode was mind games. And the story after mine was Elizabeth smart being abducted, abducted and brainwashed. <laughs> Sorry, so, I didn't laugh at that. That's not funny. at all. No, but it, yeah, but it's like, that was sort of what we were being juxtaposed with. So I, I did get a lot of negative. I, I, I got more positive and negative because they also talked about other pranks that we had done. And, um, a lot of people still were sort of on the side that this was a fun experiment even if it didn't go perfectly um and what was interesting is we were also on the pilot of this american life's tv show the very first mm-hmm. showtime episode same story with the band same interview with the guitarist and with me but they just edit it differently and the theme that week was like unexpected consequences and i only get fan mail if if people see it on tv it's so interesting yeah editing is so important i think people often don't realize it. it really is um so I ended up making good with the band. Uh, I had a a five-year anniversary show at UCB, and they came down. They were the house band for the event. And the the lead singer um, 
was actually never particularly upset and he's participated in a couple of recent improv everywhere events he moved to new york and we did a musical event this summer and he sang in it so i think everything's everything's good you keep bringing up ucb we are currently in your apartment did you move here because of its proximity (laughs) to ucb is that how you decided where you were going to live i do live very close to ucb and yes that's why i live in this weird part of town but yeah i mean upright citizens brigade has been you know the the greatest thing that's happened to me in New York. Um, I mean, I, I guess improv everywhere has been that, but I sort of made that happen. And, and UCB is something that I, that I participated in. But I started there. I took classes there uh, as soon as I moved here and just sort of moved up and got onto a team and got onto a better team and then became a teacher. And um, I, uh, I still perform there every Saturday night and, and I love it. And a lot of the main collaborators with improv everywhere, um, both the photo and video people and also the performers are from upright citizens brigade is it fair to say there could be no improv everywhere if not for upright citizens i think there could have been improv everywhere but it would have it would have grown at a much slower rate you know it would have you know because improv everywhere started before i took classes at ucb and it was a, a few college friends and i think like i would have found other social circles and you know probably would have been more theater people mm-hmm. rather than comedy people but um you know I, I i give so much credit to the theater for what i learned there and just for the connections i made there and the people i met there um as you said i'm getting married next week i met my wife at the theater or my fiance now um so uh you know i i highly recommend anybody who's hasn't even a passing interest in comedy go take a class at ucp or at least go see some shows you also have something of an April Fool's Day tradition of pranking your friends, your army, of kind of turning yeah. it around and uh, fooling the people who are theoretically on your side. Yes. Uh, uh, for instance, this year, you did a thing, I think this was this year, where uh, you said there was some, I can't remember what the fake prank that you said you pulled was, but there was someone in a Jar Jar Binks costume <laughs> who got assaulted. Yes. And you were looking for information about the person who assaulted the Jar Jar Binks. And I got to tell you, that kind of fooled me. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. I'm and, sorry. And that totally got me. And I, I think it's funny. But saying someone got us, saying someone uh, 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 to your friends, to the people who you're collaborating with, that someone got assaulted. That's a pretty serious card to play in the in the name of a joke. It is. Were it people is. upset about that? They were. Um, we've done an April Fool's Day hoax every year from the beginning. I've always been an April Fool's fan. Um, my family celebrated it growing up. I believe that. Yeah. Um, but you know. Uh, April Fools it doesn't make sense for a prank group that puts out prank videos 12 months a year to do a prank video on April 1st, right? I mean it's redundant. Yeah. So for us it's always been like, well this is the opportunity to sort of do a reverse prank. Um so and only in the last 3 years we've been doing them on YouTube. I finally realized like, oh, I should make a video. Like it used to just be like a press release like we're being sued by a jazz band called Improv Everywhere. We have to change our name, you know, just something dumb like that. Um but uh so yeah this year so many layers to that of like <laughs> we are a prank group and i'm pranking the other members of the prank group saying it's some yeah i mean not just the other members of the group but but more so our, our fan base right yeah. our youtube subscribers the people who know that they're the people who are in on it yeah exactly so we had done a, a video called star wars subway car which actually collaborated with a lot of college humor yeah, people. Yeah, Pat and Murph and Josh Rubin are all yep. in that, I believe. They, they all play the Stormtroopers, and um, you guys are nice enough to loan your awesome costumes oh, cool. um, that you ha- had done some videos with. So um, so I had done that video, and, and that video, it wasn't just random that it was Star Wars on the subway. Like, we chose the six train because there are white walls, and it looks like the Rebel ship, and the way the doors open makes it look like the Rebel ship. Okay, yeah. And it's an iconic, wonderful scene between Leia and Vader. So, you know... Uh, 
that was done for a very specific reason and i think it worked and was popular for 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 partially for those reasons so i decided like what if what if we staged an event and it made it seem like it went horribly wrong because you know every now and then you'll see haters on youtube who will type like if i ever meet these people i'll kick their ass right and like you know it's very easy to type in a comment box but i kind of wanted to show like well what would happen if somebody really you know did that um so we posted a video on April 1st uh, called Jar Jar Subway Car. Now, I would say, and, and you were fooled, I understand, but I would say, like, a very observant Improv Everywhere fan, there would be a lot of red flags that would go off. Yeah. One, why would I ever follow up Star Wars Subway Car with Jar Jar Subway Car? That's right? true. I mean, now, Lucas himself did that. Yeah. <laughs> but why would I ever have this, like, hit video with 5 million views with Darth Vader and Princess Leia and think, I'm going to make a sequel to this and use Jar Jar and Darth Maul, right? Okay, that's <laughs> like, fair. That's that, fair. That's ridiculous. There, there's no, it's nothing site-specific about it. There's nothing clever about it. It's just Jar Jar gets on the train and then a few stops later, Darth Maul gets on the train. Like, that's that's the extent of the creativity. You know what I think it was is because I have read, I just read your blog post or email or wherever it was right. just saying, I didn't see the video and I didn't think about what the actual video was. I just saw this very serious message that we were looking for this man right there are a number of ways to sort of get sucked into the hoax yeah. and you might have seen my my tumblr post it was just like hey guys this this serious thing happened so um so the way the video plays out is that the guy in the jar jar costume like we, we cast three of our friends to play like thugs three kind of tough looking dudes and um actors from ucb so jar jar like kind of gets in their face he's like misa jar jar misa scared yeah. you seen darth maul very good jar jar yeah thank you uh so he gets in their face and like he does it like way too close to their face and that's sort of the other red flag for like a true improv everywhere fan like you should know that i am not going to do a thing where somebody gets up in someone's face that's just like not our style like we don't violate people's personal space if somebody doesn't want to participate in what we're doing we respect that and stand back uh because we're not stupid so and the and the thug even says like if you come at me again we're gonna have a serious problem and he immediately does it again so he gets he gets beat down the video actually does i mean it was fake right he didn't mm -hmm. really get beat down um we film it with like a shaky camera and you know it's obstructed you know his back is kind of to the camera so it's just implied violence it's no actual violence um but um and then i come on at the end and say like you know we're looking for these three men which like also everybody at ucb is like oh that's you know justin sean and billy <laughs> like oh i get it yeah, this yeah. is a joke um but yeah people got people got upset when it was revealed to be a prank usually with our april fool stuff like we make it look like we did this terrible thing and then when we reveal it's a prank, everybody's like, oh, okay. Like, we, one year we pretended, we put up a video that made it seem like we had pranked a funeral, which obviously we would never do. People were outraged and pissed off. We put up the video on April 2nd. It was like, it was all, it was a fake funeral. Everybody was an actor. It was a joke on you. People were like, oh, I was fooled. That's hilarious. This year, I have to say, when we put up the video the next day saying, like, the thugs were actors. It was all a joke on you. A lot of people said, oh, that's really funny. But there were a lot of people that were upset about it. And, and took kind of took the opinion of how dare you make me concerned for, you know, I was genuinely concerned for, you know, your actor who got hurt, which like my response was like, OK, but I just said we were looking for these guys like there's no blood in the video. I didn't say he was in the hospital. I didn't say donate to cover his medical bills. You know, I just said we're looking for these guys because he wants to press charges. And, and really, like that was part of the joke, like 
you're looking for these guys? Like, your actor, clearly, <laughs> your Jar Jar, uh, Jar Jar Binks actor got up in someone's face multiple times and got what he deserved, and now you are trying to press charges on those guys? Like, that was part of the joke. Like, I, I was playing a, you know, a pompous idiot going like, we're trying to find these guys because we were, you know, we were wronged here when, like, clearly we were in the wrong. And then the last thing I'll say, the other sort of broad joke about the whole thing is, like, it's 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 Jar Jar for a reason. Like, who is the most annoying person that could be in your face on the subway? Probably Jar Jar. Yeah, very much so. Jar Jar or George Lucas, one of the two. <laughs> right. It's incredible to hear just how much, I think, this level of planning that even I didn't realize, even I didn't realize, <laughs> but there, there's so many subtle things, like we chose the six train because it looks like this. So much planning goes into this. And I've known you for years now, and I'm still a little unclear on this. Is this your full-time job? Is this what you do? Oh. And this is, by the way, a, a running Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin I know. show question. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, it, it is actually my job. Um, you know, I for the first five years of improv everywhere, I was a temp worker, and I answered phones, you know, for an office. Um, and then finally it started getting popular enough where I was able to, to quit that job and, and take on a part-time job, which was teaching classes at UCB, which I did for many years. Um, and then... Finally, I've gotten so busy with improv everywhere that I no longer teach. Um, but it, it's my job in a few ways. One, um, we're in the YouTube partner program. So if you see our videos on YouTube, there is advertising next to them. And YouTube splits that revenue uh, with us. Um, that's not a lot of money, but it's it's enough money to cover the cost of all the pranks, to buy a Jar Jar outfit and a Darth Maul outfit. Um, you were going to buy a Darth Maul and a Jar Jar outfit anyway. <laughs> Every Halloween, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm able to pay some of my crew. Um pay my editor pay the composer and um you know not a lot but i'm, I'm able to, to give them stipends and I'm, the, the the projects pay for themselves with the money that we receive on youtube and then beyond that I, i'm able to make it my job primarily through touring so i tour all around the u.s and speak at college campuses i have a, a pretty big fan base from college kids so i'll go i'll show up at your school i'll stage an mp3 experiment event on your quad you know, in the late afternoon, and then that evening, I'll give a talk where I screen videos and answer questions and give a behind-the-scenes look at improv everywhere. So I do a lot of that, um, and I tour internationally as well too. So um, there, are, you know, other countries have more money for the arts than the U.S. tends to spend. So you know, um, there, I've been all over Europe and Australia, South Africa. I've been to all these places to art festivals or theater festivals or comedy festivals um, where you know they have money to pay you an artist fee and bring you over to, to stage something there. That's cool. It's encouraging to hear, and you talk about how you maybe couldn't do improv everywhere 20 years ago. I think we are right now on this forefront of this, and it's. It, I think if you make something as good as improv everywhere and as popular as improv everywhere, I mean, those YouTube videos have at least a million views each. That's like the floor. Pretty then, much, yeah. And then, you know, Grand Central is 30 million views. Right. If you make something that popular, it is encouraging to hear that you can make it your job without you know, necessarily selling it as a TV show is right. working for yourself and you can actually, and I think you are kind of one of the first people maybe to really make a career out of your own show on YouTube. Yeah. I mean, there are many others. I mean, I'm like the 65th most popular channel on YouTube and I guarantee you that everybody in the top 100 probably they're able to do what they do full time, you know, partly through YouTube revenue and partly just from, you know, selling merchandise and touring and doing all sorts of different things. You know, I mean, and the 
there are other people there are people on youtube too who can release much more frequently than we can right so i do like one video a month like it's a lot of work to put mm -hmm. together an improv everywhere project if i was able to do a, three videos a week like you know someone like ray william johnson or shane dawson or some of these really top guys on youtube um you know then that youtube money would really become meaningful and it, it could become a full-time job just on youtube I mean, Ray William Johnson's an, an interesting case. He's the number one YouTube channel right now. Mm -hmm. And he has on his YouTube page in the contact area where, like, he, he would give you his email address. Um, sometimes I think he might not even have an email address. Uh, but he says, uh, I am not interested in being on television, and I am not interested in promoting products. Wow. So he is successful enough on YouTube that he wants he, – he has it. He wants nothing else. And I think that is really exciting. So uh, I alluded to this earlier, but in 2007, I made a TV pilot for NBC. Mm -hmm. Ton of fun to make. It was called Improv Everywhere. I was the executive producer. I, I did what I wanted to do on it. I was proud of it. Didn't get picked up. Um, and I think in another era, that would have been the end of the project. Like, yeah. Okay, you did this thing. It got kind of popular. You got a TV show deal, and then it failed. But what's exciting about the time we're living in now is that it didn't matter. You know, I was upset for like, couple months about it then i was like well wait a minute i still have hundreds of thousands of subscribers on youtube you know like as you said most of the videos we put out get to a million views with within a couple of weeks you know the successful ones and you know look a show that's on a small cable channel like might not get a million yeah, viewers you know i mean 30 million people watching that grand central video is three times the size of a hit show right and that's one video and it's over the course of you know it's four-year life on sure. youtube but uh but we're it's very exciting that we're living in a time where you can reach the world and and that's sort of like when i speak at colleges that's sort of the message that i have for young college-age kids who are creative people i say you know whether you're a musician or whether you're an actor or a, a writer or, or whatever creative endeavor you're in put your work on the internet and do it because you love it Put it on the internet, give it away for free, and if it's good, it'll rise to the top. And like you know, improv everywhere was not my job for you know the first six, seven years that I was doing it, um, and I didn't want it to be. It was my passion. It was what I liked doing. But I think like if you do something because you love it and you keep doing it and you you put it out there, and you're prolific, eventually the great stuff rises to the top and it can be your job. I get the sense that even if you know, I told you, you're never going to make money on this, that it wouldn't affect how much Improv Everywhere videos are coming out, even a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 what I like to do, you know. I mean, the, I think the fact that I don't, I no longer have to have a 9 to 5, 40 hour a week job, I'm able to make the projects happen more frequently, and I'm able to, you know, have better production values, and, you know, I, I think the quality's gone up now that I, you know, not sitting at a desk for 40 hours a week. Although I have to say, when I did have a day job, I... Of those 40 hours a week, I probably spent 39 of them working on improv everywhere, which is my other tip to, like, you know, teenagers, uh, is, you know, w when you move to New York and you have to get a survival job, you know, just find the job where you can be on the Internet all day and do your thing, you know, and have to answer a phone every now and then. Because for me, like, all the planning for the first five years of pranks for improv everywhere was done over, like, AOL Instant Messenger from my temp job to my 10 friends at their temp jobs. So try to steal resources from yes. big companies that hire temps is what you're saying. I, I think that's I think that's a fair exchange. Yes. Well, it panned out for you. Congratulations <laughs> on your success and making it a full time job. ImprovEverywhere.com. I feel like you should be. It's so popular. I feel like you should be plugging me at the end of the show. Um, congratulations. I, I'm such a huge fan. And thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It was fun.